Hey listeners, James is still out sick, but I am told that he is getting better. In the meantime, to help me open today's show on a high note, we've got two very special guests, Rachel and Chloe Sachs. Welcome back to Don't Touch That Porcupine. Porcupines have very spiky quills that hurt. Porcupines are dangerous creatures. You shouldn't touch the porcupines. But they're really cute. You can rub their bellies. And if you are to touch them, touch them with gloves. And I actually dropped a baby porcupine once. Oh no, Rachel! That was an episode of Don't Don't Touch Touch That That Porcupine. Porcupine. We'll be back next time on... Don't Touch That Porcupine. No, on um, the Foreign Society. Foreign Policy. Oh yeah, that one. Bye! I mean, I'm done. I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that. I mean, I'm just not that cute. I've I've recruited my dog, my mother-in-law, but I can't follow that. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. On today's show, we're going to take a look at the psychological toll of living through a global crisis. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Anne Speckhard, an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical School, to discuss how individuals and societies respond to a trauma like this. But first, I gave my colleague Keith Johnson a call. Keith is our global geoeconomics correspondent, and he's based in Madrid, the epicenter of Spain's coronavirus outbreak, where he's already had a run-in with the police. So you're in Madrid, right? Yeah, we're in Madrid. So we're on, um, boy, what are we, two weeks or so into the uh, lockdown. It was March 14th, I think, was when they announced the nationwide lockdown. Yikes. And then, uh, yeah, just over the weekend, they ramped it up a little bit with what they referred to as sort of a, you know, total paralysis or, you know, hibernation of the economy. So basically shutting down everything except, you know, essential services. So what was open before the total shutdown? What were they able to finally close? Well, this is the thing is that, you know, they had left open the things that people need, uh, you know, grocery stores, pharmacies, tobacco shops, um, (laughs) gas stations, you know, banks were still offering some limited services. So that's part of the problem is there were still a lot of people going to work. And there were an awful lot of companies, apparently, you know, manufacturing concerns and things like that, that were still, you know, working at a regular schedule. And those are the ones they just ordered to just shut down, basically, wow. you know, Sunday at midnight. Wow. So are banks shut now? Well, you know, it's funny. They called me the other day to see if we needed anything. And uh, I said, no, I've got to go in and, you know, drop off the tax thing in, in the next few weeks. And they're like, well, you know, you're going to have to call us and make an appointment. And, you know, we'll, then we can try to take care of it. So most shops are, are closed, obviously. Restaurants, bars, cafes, yeah. all of that's completely shuttered. You know, so they basically the only the only time you're in the street is like grocery shopping. What about tobacco stores? Are they... Yeah, they're open, uh, you know, reduced hours, but they're open. You know, it's a little bit like in the States, um, you know, I saw in Virginia and in in New York and Massachusetts, I think that, you know, the liquor stores are considered an essential service. You know, similar sort of deal here. There's certain things that people need to get through this, um, you know, and that's one of them. So you're a couple of weeks ahead of a lot of places here in the U.S. in terms of lockdown. Give us some advice. Like, how do you, two weeks in, how are you surviving 
How are you keeping sane? No, well, the the, the sanity ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> so I've given up any hope of that. Uh, you know, that went right after personal hygiene. The trickiest part, you know, I feel bad for the kids because in Spain we have a, a real draconian lockdown, which is worse than, you know, in other countries in that, you know, basically the kids can't go outside ever. Now, they amended the rule and there's some certain exceptions for, you know, if you have really small kids, you know, they can go to the store with you. But like, you know, minor, uh, probably, I don't know, somewhere around 12 or 13. And, uh, you know, they haven't been outside literally in two weeks. So the best thing they can do is, you know, open a window and, and try to catch a, a breath of air that way. So they're going a little bit stir crazy. Um, and of course, they're trying to do homeschooling at the same time. So, you know, it's very stressful because it never stops. You know, you have the every time you go to the store and you've got to get your gloves on and find your mask. And then chances are you're going to get at least me. I always tend to get questioned by the police every time I'm out. You know, you have to make sure you have a receipt, you know, no matter where you go so that you can, you know, explain, you know, to the police that, you know, no, the thing that you're carrying is, is bought today because otherwise you can get a pretty hefty fine. So, okay. you know, it's pretty bad. Are the kids even allowed out to walk the dog? No, no. And so that, you know, that's one thing we can we can get out a couple times a day with the dog. And so dog owners do have that uh, you know luxury of a sort. Although, again, you know, the cops do patrol and you know you're not meant to stray very far so you know take the dog out do its business but no you know how long jaunts and so you know that's tricky they can't even take out the the garbage i mean that's when we got pulled over the first time you know i tried to let them take out the garbage at midnight and the cops stopped us so um the army is actually going to be jointly patrolling the streets as well they've apparently had you know quite a, a few people trying to sidestep the lockdown you know so things are starting to get you know, a little bit dicey in that sense. And, and it gives you kind of a end of the world vibe to your morning coffee. I bet. And how many cases are there in Madrid right now? Do you have a rough estimate? Uh, you know, I don't know the Madrid numbers. I, I think Madrid's the hardest hit of the, mm. uh, you know, the 17 autonomous communities. But nationwide cases are just over 94,000. You know, so that's that's a lot for, you know, a country of 45 or so million. And the death curve was slowing down for a couple of days. And then the last two days, it sort of ticked back up again. Um, you know, so they haven't quite, you know, bent that curve all the way yet. So on today's episode of the podcast, I'm going to be speaking to um, a psychiatrist about the topic of collective trauma and how different countries handle mass traumatic experiences. And Spain has no shortage of these in the past century. How do you think as a society, Spain is going to go forward after the pandemic is over? You know, I don't know, because that's the, the other thing, too. You'd think uh, it will be very easy to, you know, maintain contact with friends, you know, via messaging and things. But other than, you know, folks who you were checking in with for, you know, health concerns or things like that, you know, I don't seem to have as much regular contact uh, with my Spanish friends as I did before. So I haven't actually had a lot of these conversations. Um, yeah. And you're right, you know, the, the, the Civil War here was, you know, only 80 years ago, and that's still reverberates. That was traumatic. You know, you had the dictatorship here. You had the main financial crisis and then the years of pain and aftermath here, you know, which really lingered longer than in a lot of places. Yeah. So, you know, you're right. They're no strangers to this sort of crisis. You know, we'll see exactly how bad this gets. You know, if you could sort of minimize this, then it would just be sort of a bad dream, a fever dream. But if these contained measures don't work or it's another year until we get the vaccine, you know, I can see this society, just like any society, you know, there's a before and there's an after. 
That was Keith Johnson, my colleague here at Foreign Policy. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. So I've been really curious about the psychological toll that this pandemic could take on us individually, but also collectively as societies. You know, in 40 years time, am I going to have 10 litres of disinfectant in my basement and 200 rolls of toilet paper and my grandchildren are just going to think it's some weird quirk that grandma has and never really understand where it, where it came from? Although if I come out of this with nothing more than a toilet paper habit, I think that's going to be getting off pretty lightly. But to understand more about this issue, I spoke over Skype with Dr. Anne Speckhard, an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University's medical school. So Anne, could you just start by explaining, you know, what is the difference between individual trauma and collective trauma at a group or a society level? Like, What are the difference in the dynamics of how it happens and then how it plays out? I think since we're talking in the context of COVID, we have to talk about what's usually seen as trauma and then could this pandemic be experienced as a trauma individually or collectively. Mm -hmm. And usually traumas are war, uh, shootings, crime, violence of some sort, car accidents. But they're usually things that are really concrete and visible Mm -hmm. and that we experience. And the way it works with PTSD is that you can't get your head around it. It happens in an overwhelming way. Um, If you have a traumatic memory, it lives in your amygdala and it doesn't break up into little pieces and go into your normal narrative memory. So when I have a conversation with you, I'll remember bits and pieces of it and I can pull it back up into kind of a net. But if I have a traumatic memory, it lives like a film. And that's why people that have traumas say, It's like a film that went off in my head, but it's full sensory. I feel it, I smell it, I see it again. It's all there. Mm -hmm. And that means that that memory has not been processed in a normal way. And the reason it hasn't been processed is it's too overwhelming, whatever happened. But COVID is a little bit different than ordinary traumas because it's fear-producing information. So I call this an invisible stressor. And we studied this when it came to Chernobyl, to radiation. So remember the liquidators that went and closed down Chernobyl? They went on the roof of the building and the reactor, and they built this whole sarcophagus. And they got heavily radiated. But they never saw it. Uh, They never felt anything in their bodies. Some of them got terribly sick. Some of them died. Mm -hmm. But the majority of them went home. But they had this information load of you've been radiated and this might mean that you're not going to have normal children in the future. It might mean that you're going to get cancer and die early in your life. Could mean a lot of really horrible things that have to do with death and dying and threat of death. 
So liquidators went home and their uh, wives said, I don't want to have sex with you because I don't want to conceive a child by you. And this is all based on information. So if none of them had known that they were radiated, they would have gone home and lived their lives normally until they got sick if they were one of the unlucky ones that did get sick. Right. So it's the information that has the traumatizing effect rather than a experience. Exactly. And with COVID, we're taking in this information. A lot of us have been exposed. Like, for instance, everyone living in my house has been exposed to a different person who had COVID. Mm. So we're living with information of, am I going to get it? Um, I can read on Twitter other people's experiences with COVID and imagine that for myself. So when information is a stressor and when it has to do with future, it's different than PTSD because PTSD, your brain will keep trying to give you the information that's stored in your amygdala. So it will keep playing the movie of the car accident, whatever it was, trying to get you to break it into little pieces and put it in your narrative memory. And it's a healing process, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like constant suffering. And if it remains too overwhelming, the person will avoid it, try to shut it down, get really bad panic attacks and hyperarousal. And if they go to treatment, their therapist will help them slowly, slowly open up this memory, process it, give it meaning, and finally walk away from it so that it doesn't keep haunting them in these intrusive flashbacks, or the person will turn to alcohol or something like that to self-medicate, which usually doesn't work out so well. And in the case of radiation or a pandemic, a disease that's giving us the same kind of threat of you may be imminently about to die, or horrific things are going to happen to you, and you may witness them happening to other people. So then your mind creates, instead of flashbacks that you keep seeing the past, you start going into the future and attributing it as your future. And some people can put that in perspective Mm -hmm. and can say, it's not likely to happen to me. And then we also have, with an information stressor, that people are going to have loved ones die. And then we're probably not going to get so much PTSD as complicated mourning because you won't have been able to say goodbye to that person. You won't have been at their bedside. You maybe can't go to their funeral. They maybe don't have a normal funeral. You know, all kinds of issues of what exactly happened with the body. So this can cause an interruption in normal grieving. And what happens when you have, I mean, often when we talk about trauma, as you said, we talk about it in an individual sense, like a car accident, an attack, witnessing a terrible event. But what happens when you have an entire group, a community, even a country going through variations of a similar traumatic experience? Then you create a story. So Probably the best example of this is Jewish people that went through the Holocaust and decided never, ever forget. And you see this um, in Israel with the um, hysterical reactions if the military is threatened in a a serious way, because Mm -hmm. it can never happen again. And 
there's nothing wrong with that. That's a normal story for a really abnormal event. But whole communities, whole nations try to create meaning and our thought leaders create the meaning for us. So hopefully when we get through this crisis, we'll have a story of we need better preparation. We need really good health care. We need to think about our uninsured and we need to think about people if they lose their jobs that in the U.S. system, we lose our insurance. And how can we make a safety net for horrific things like what's happening right now? Yeah. These kind of things that are traumatic, particularly if they don't get totally dealt with, they live in a place in our brain, our amygdalas, where if there's clues to them, they flash up. And it's to protect us because things that are traumas are hurtful to us. They threaten our lives. And our brains know to say, warning, warning, it's happening again, even Mm -hmm. if it's not. I think in the beginning of this, that was one of the weirdest things about the pandemic is that in the United States, you know, I think a lot of the collective storytelling and narrative you see around traumatic events is, you know, be it in a town or a state, you know, people come out and they say, you know, like, like Boston strong, New York strong, and often, you know, in response to, you know, terrible events, there's kind of mass public gatherings, there's vigils, there's a, a physical manifestation outpouring of support and strength and because of the nature of the pandemic you know everyone's just had to do the complete opposite and I think that that especially in the early days that was what people found kind of seemed to find so hard to get their heads around. Well that's a another good point that some of the things that cause us the most pain um, and fear is is one of those and overwhelming fear as in a trauma Um, it raises the cortisol in your body and you feel a sense of hyperarousal and and fear. And one of the ways to get that to go down, to temper itself, is um, through attachment. So when a person comes in and talks to a therapist, or if they even go talk to a loved one, the attachment process gives oxytocin in the body and the brain, And it antagonizes the cortisol and you start to calm. That's why you see little kids when they're going off, you know, little toddlers, and they're going off to explore their world. If something frightens them, they run back to their parent and and they want to be touched. They want to be hugged and they want to be held and reassured that things are okay. They're unconsciously following a pattern of lowering their cortisol. And we need to do that, too. So the more attachment we have, and that's why people should be meeting in Zoom groups and Skype groups and having their cocktails together at night. I I know my daughter does that every night. She gets on the phone with a group of her friends at 9 p.m. And that's very reassuring. I'm not alone. I'm not facing this alone. And uh, anxiety often uh, goes down when we're united. And people may need to hear from you. And if you're feeling anxious and depressed yourself, reaching out probably is a good way of handling it and talking. And laughter is a wonderful medicine. That was Dr. Anne Speckhard, an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University's Medical School. That's it from us today. For more on how coronavirus could shape the world as we know it, Head over to foreignpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis. 
I'm Amy McKinnon. Our show is produced by Darcy Palzer and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember not to touch any porcupines and don't touch your face. <laughs>